Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply station management or staff since individual situations can and will be different please remember this when exercising any options presented by our guests success is equated with success the ambition for excess wrecks us as the top of the mind becomes the bottom line where success is equated with excess this is money talks with capstone wealth management bringing life back into balance with a more thoughtful approach to wealth management now from capstone wealth management here's chris klein on the big 1070, 1070 AM and 100.9 FM. Welcome in. I am Mike Pilch along with Chris Klein of Capstone Wealth Management. Taking it through the week that was in the world of finance. Give it the best advice there is for investors. All right, Capstone Wealth Management of private fee-only financial planning and investment management service. So if you need a financial plan, they're going to build it, then they'll help you monitor and maintain it through smart investment management. To get in contact with them, you can pick up the phone and dial or type the buttons 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. You can also email them info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. Chris, welcome into your own show. Good morning. I like the dial, you know, the good old barn phone, you know, just back to the good old days. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that not long ago. My grandmother had an old, huge dial phone hanging on the wall of her basement until she moved out of that home in 2002, and I don't think I've seen one since then. Yeah, hey, you know, good old nostalgic pieces. Um, 
you know, I think there's some people that would like some nostalgia right now, like a market that, that didn't have so much volatility. Yeah, it's been a wild ride here, and there's just been a lot of different angles and a lot of different stuff that has gone on in the last week. So let's just take a look at the degree of sentiment in the market to start. Yeah, so what I'd like to spend today's show on is just kind of um, laying out the facts as we know they exist, right? Um lay out the items that could help identify a bull or a bear case and just stack up where all the details are. And that'll help you come to a conclusion of, is this, um, so I've called it a hissy fit. And frankly, I still think it's that, but is it that or is it something more? So Monday of this past week, which was the 10th, we saw what could be described as a climactic low. And if you look at a, a chart of the S&P 500 as an example, um, you'd see that it cut below intraday the previous low, um, and, and, and then it closed near the highs of that particular day. So it was, it was what we would refer to as a reversal. Mm-hmm. Market bounced up a little bit, and then, of course, yesterday closed down fairly, fairly strong, a couple percentage points. And, and so often what you'll get, and this was identified by famed technician Walter Deemer. Um, I tweeted this out, uh, I don't know when, but sometime this past week, that when you get a climactic low like that, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, it's it tested again three to four days later. Well, yesterday was the fourth day, right? And we certainly ended up with this bit of a test, um, along with testing everybody's patience, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this feels very much like what it did in, like, March of 2009. Now, most people probably don't remember what it felt like to be an investor in March of 2009 unless you were actively engaged in picking positions and investing money and all that sort of stuff. If you were just running through the the motions and placing money in your 401k and letting it do what it does, this isn't going to have a lot of effect to you at that moment. But the feeling was that, oh, the whole sky's falling. Oh, sure. The floor is falling out from beneath you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of feeling like that. And and so typically when when you see these kind of sentiment readings, which, by the way, they're off the charts, Mike, when you see the, the, the type of, of sentiment that we've got right now in terms of negativity displayed by the average investor anyway, it ordinarily is viewed as an extreme. And as you know, one of the sayings that we use at Capstone Wealth Management all the time is beware of the herd at extremes. Yeah, it's a mantra. Yep. It is. We want to be careful of that herd at top extremes, and we want to be careful of that herd at bottom extremes. And, And so we use a number of different tools to help us identify when any form of sentiment might, in fact, have hit an extreme. And interestingly enough, this week, um, we reached a very, very interesting extreme uh, in terms of looking at a stock-bond ratio of the NASDAQ 100 with the average investor. And, and so, you know, typically when ma and pa investor, affectionately, not institutions, reach this level of excessive pessimism about their investments and, and the future of markets and money and all that stuff. Traditionally, it's been during these times that have made excellent entry or buy points, right? As you know, we don't use any one indicator to identify a buy point or a sell point, but 
But when you use this particular tool, especially when you're in the extremes range, it's exceedingly useful because yeah. that's where you find the turns, either to the upside or to the downside, depending upon you know where you are within that marketplace. So as we've written about through a multitude of newsletters and as I've spoken about on this show again and again and again and again, one of the main drivers of how we view an entry point with, within any market is, is what we call the SM index. And that has a ton of stuff in it. And I'm not going to bore you or anybody else with all the specific details of the momentum indicators and valuation stuff and things that this is all built with. But we've written about it a ton, and specifically over the last eight weeks since we've gone through the October 29th low, the November 20th test, the climactic low that took place as a, uh, a retest, if you will, here mm-hmm. just on Monday, and then, of course, this little uh, continuation of that test uh, today, or yesterday, rather. So what we did was is we went back and we started to look at all the research from all different kinds of markets, not only bull markets, but markets that rolled over into bear markets. And what we wanted to do was look at, well, what were the forward returns of these markets when Ma and Pa got so negative, so despondent, that they reached the extreme of pessimism? Okay, yeah. And and there's a multitude of different times over the past five years that that they've reached those excessive uh, elements of, of pessimism. And in every instance at least when you look at, at how markets did one year later, in every instance, it was a good time to be a market participant. It was a good time to be a buyer of investments as it relates to publicly traded companies. And, in fact, if you look at average returns over the past five years of every instance in which we have seen this degree of sentiment negativity by the average ma and pa investor, that's, again, not institutions, the average annual return again, looking back over the five years, it's like 16.5% with a 100% win rate. Hmm. So yikes! we're always looking for those extremes hmm. because that then helps us to identify, is the extreme telling us what it has always told us in the past or is the extreme telling us something different, yeah. right? We know that, that the past doesn't predict the future. I mean, that's, everybody knows that. But, Mike, we're, not, we're talking about human behavior here. That's sentiment. If there's anything that's true about human nature, is that it is fairly predictable at extremes. Yes. You push someone to their internal extreme, and you can pretty much guess how they're going to react, right? Probably not well. <laughs> Markets are just a confluence of people's, well, right. fear and greed, really. I mean, if you really want to break it down to the lowest common denominator and the element that is filtered into markets and money, it's fear and greed. Fear that I'm going to lose a bunch, greed that I'd like to make more, right? And the old Gordon Gecko <laughs> statement. Greed is essentially good, good. <laughs> right. I don't know that I agree with that statement, but nevertheless, you, you get my point, yep, right? We're, yep. we're talking about sentiment, which is, by and large, nothing but human psychology. And, and there is no doubt that there are a ton of people right now at the extremes of their ability to functionally handle negative sentiment, right? I, there's no doubt that there are more than a few po- people listening right now that put themselves in the category of, I'm stressed, I'm stretched, yeah. 
I I feel as if the end is near. Um, People having know. serenity now moments, basically. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Serenity now. Uh, that's exactly what what's taking place. I mean, yeah. it is so 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 easy to project into the future your most recent experiences, it, and in most cases, if you do that, it's you, it's it's incorrect. It, if it's a good experience, then you have a tendency to project that into the future, too. Everybody listening probably remembers what it was like in 1999 when everybody thought that markets could never go down and all I have to do is buy Dell Computer and Cisco Systems and I'm going to retire a bajillionaire. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's what everybody was doing. They were projecting into the future to infinity their most recent experience. Well, it happens in the other way, too. It, you project into the future your most recent experience on the negative side. You ever heard of the death spiral? Oh, yeah. People put themselves into a death spiral about a whole host of different things. And nothing can drive you into a mental state of death spiralness like money. The belief that that money is going to go away, especially if, if someone's retired. And I understand that, you know. Markets have created this environment over the past number of years that have forced retirees into doing and taking certain degrees of risk that they might not have otherwise taken, but yeah. they needed the yield, right? They, they needed return that they cannot get, for the most part, out of cash or other varying degrees of, of, of sentiment and things like that. So all I want to do today is just kind of go through the psychology of what we're seeing, help people realize that the little hissy fit that we've had happen so far while it feels monumental, and I think it feels monumental just because there's so much display of it everywhere you look. You know, the nightly news, oh, Dow's off 500 points. And what they don't tariffs talk about are going to do and what this, then, the other is going to do exactly, yeah. And I'm going to talk about all that as well because I think there are a number of very relevant things that relate to what's happening in the, in the market regarding trade. The Federal Reserve meets next week on the 18th and 19th. They're going to be very instrumental, and I'm going to talk about what's happening in that element that we can get some clues from, again, to identify is this a hissy fit, like I said, or is there something worse to it? So there's an, and we're going to talk about some earnings stuff, only because, not specifics, but on the periphery as it relates to how analysts are looking at it going forward, because that also gives us some clues into is this a hissy fit or something worse or something better? Okay. Is, is it a buy point, or, buy point or a sell point? So there's a number of things that we're going to talk about as the show develops today, but th those are the main things that I want to help people through today. Because at the end of the day, what we have to make sure we're doing is get all of the evidence available, kind of put it in a T-square fashion, allow the information to fall where it's going to fall, the bull case, the bear case, and come to a conclusion of what the evidence, the facts, not the emotion, but the facts are saying. Because making an emotional decision usually never turns out so well. And that's what I want to help keep people away from. All right. To get in touch with Chris Klein at Capstone Wealth Management, it's info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. You can also call them 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. 86. I am Mike Pilch. He is Chris Klein. This is Muddy Talks with Capstone Wealth Management.
This is Money Talks with Capstone Wealth Management, bringing life back into balance with a more thoughtful approach to wealth management on the Big 1070, 1070 AM and 100.9 FM. A lot to get to today, Capstone Wealth Management. Private fee-only financial planning and investment management service. So you need a financial plan, they're going to build it, then they'll help you monitor and maintain it through smart investment management. It's 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886, the phone number to get in touch with them. You can also send them an email, info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. The psychology of what you're seeing in the markets right now, Chris, it seems like it's just primarily negative. <laughs> it is. No, it, it absolutely is. There's very little um, positive psychology. And, it, you know, and what I mean by that is uh, there are ordinarily – um, when you go through times of, of dips and volatility, you'll you'll see a drumbeat of a certain group of people that are, well, shouldn't we be buying? Isn't there a ton of stuff to go get? <laughs> and we, there's not a lot of that out there right now. It's a very negative environment, and that negativity is what has created some of the extremes that I spoke about in, yeah. in, the, in the first segment. That first segment that I spoke about was identifying a five-year um, cycle of pessimism or extreme pessimism from mm-hmm. essentially now backwards five years, which you know would have taken us down into the you know 2013 2014 range, and and so some people who look at the past five years say, well, that wasn't a bad time for markets, and and so okay, fine. The next logical question when considering whether or not the degree of negative extremes that were seeing today mm-hmm. are in fact or should be viewed differently if this is the beginning of a really bad market. So the logical question would be, well, what happened to markets after excessive pessimism during bad markets, right? That would be the follow-up, yep. <laughs> Great question. So we went back and looked at how excessive pessimism played out during two very, very famous and very difficult times in markets over the past 20 years, one of them was from 1997 through 2004. Okay. Most people listening will remember that that included the, the tech wreck, right? Yeah. <laughs> when, when technology shares just completely fell apart. And the other one was essentially 2003 through 2012. And so, of course, that would include the famous or infamous, I should say, financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So we went back and we looked at those times, and, and we identified all the instances in which the um, excessive pessimism level was breached, and whether or not that would have been a good time to identify a buy side. Now, in our world, as I said at the beginning of the show, we never look at just one indicator. There's, I mean, like there's thousands, right? Some of them That's are wrapped up. Some of them are wrapped up into one, but in that one, there are literally dozens mm-hmm. on, upon dozens to, to give us the, the final readings of that. So for us, we can't look at any of these previous instances or times of excessive optimism and pessimism without at least considering two things: one, the yield curve during those times of, of market distress, and two, the escape hatch zone that we use for a get out of dodge indicator mm-hmm. right 
the escape hatch zone that we use is nothing more than a monetary momentum indicator. In other words, it tracks the degree of movement, the speed of movement of money, either in or out of markets, right? And so when we go back and we start to look at the tech rec from, you know, in, in terms of this, uh, this sentiment structure from 1997 through 2004, what, what someone looking at it would see were approximately eight instances in which excessive pessimism breached the level that would historically identify a good buy point, okay. right? Okay. So the average person looking at that would say, okay, well, I had eight instances from 1999 through the spring of 2003 that were excessive pessimism breaches that traditionally are a great time to buy. That person's probably thinking at the same time that if I chose any one of them would have been a terrible time to invest. Sure. Well, they'd be right. But like I said, decisions to buy or sell, at least with us at Capstone Wealth Management, are never made in a vacuum. And, and I have to stress to people that, especially if you're doing this on your own, don't look at just one thing that somebody sends you from a tweet or from a Snapchat or from, you know, some blog room somewhere that says, hey, look at this. And it's one chart telling you that the world's coming to an end. So we never consider one indicator. But this, in this instance, for that person who looked at 1990, uh, 1999 through 2003 and said, oh, those are all terrible times to invest, that they would be right. But we have to consider, as I said, the yield curve and the escape hatch zone and where they were in those instances. And, and so for us, we received a trigger from our escape hatch zone to sell everything right towards the end of 2000, which was before a major portion of the market's collapse of that time. Yeah. For us, the escape hatch zone trumps everything in terms of any entry point indicator, right? On top of that, when you look at the yield curve, we had two inversion warnings prior to the escape hatch zone trigger. Now, the yield curve being considered in this instance, or the one that we're monitoring, is the two-year treasury compared to the 10-year treasury. That's the one with the predictive power in terms of recessionary elements that ultimately can roll into a bear market, right? So the key is, one, a yield curve inversion, and then a monetary momentum failure, or in other words, an escape hatch zone trigger. So just because there were a number of excessive pessimism breaches, which, again, have historically been around the times of good entry points, mm -hmm. the indicator takes a back seat to both the yield curve and the escape hatch zone. All right. So even though we had a number of them in that bad market, what we have to do is view that from the standpoint of, well, what else was happening? Well, yield curve inversions and a monetary momentum failure. That's number one. Let's consider the great financial crisis back, mm -hmm. of course, in, in 2008, right? And so when we look at uh, excessive pessimism breaches on the, um, uh, on the ma and pa sentiment scale, mm -hmm. right? There, there were a number of different signals um, that came about that particular time frame. In fact, there were signals and breaches in late 2007 and early 2008. Again, the average person hearing, okay, I had an excessive pessimism breach. Mm -hmm. Historically, that's a good time to invest, but if I would have invested in late 07 and early 08, that would have been a terrible time. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you would have been right. But again, let's look at 
the other and the rest of the story, specifically the escape hatch zone and the yield curve at that time. So number one, there was a two-year, 10-year yield curve inversion that started in mid-2006, and it lasted all the way through to one degree or another, bouncing up and down 2007. Mm-hmm. And then, after that, an escape hatch zone signal came in late summer, early fall of 2007. So that was a sell-everything signal, which, again, trumped the excessive pessimism buy signals during those times. So where are we now? And this is where, where again, all we're attempting to do is lay out the facts, identify what we know to be true, look at the data as it's available and is being given to us on a day-by-day basis, and come to some conclusions of do we have more positive than negative or do we have more negative than positive. The bottom line is you have multiple indicators feeding you multiple pieces of information. You just got to figure out the best way to go. You can't look at one or two things. And look at one or two things. And for us at Capstone Wealth Management, you have to understand how to interpret them. Yeah. Um, and there are a ton of ways that people can interpret yield curves, and in many instances could be wrong. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But oh. So let's ask the question, where are we now? Well, here's what we know we have. Number one, we have an excessive pessimism buy signal. That's what we know we have. Number two... We have two SM buy indicators that have come fairly close back-to-back within the last roughly four and a half to eight to seven weeks, right? What don't we have? Number one, we do not have an inverted... Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Build curve on the two-year, 10-year bond cycle. That's number one. Number two, we do not have a UW index sell signal. What's a UW index sell signal? It's an internal proprietary indicator that we use to help us monitor the momentum of money, right? Mm-hmm. If money is, 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 if money is um, dying in terms of leaving markets, UW index would trigger. We know that's, that that's true, and we don't have that signal right now. What else do we not have? We do not have an excessive optimism sell signal. Good grief, Mike. Nobody's optimistic right now. Not even you're time. overly optimistic. What's that tell you? Well, actually, I am. Okay. And, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. But see, that, that's the element, right? That, that's the element, is that when you're dealing with excessive optimism and excessive pessimism, it's the extremes that matter. The internal stuff that bounces around day by day by day mm-hmm. inside the extremes 
doesn't tell you much. But when you get to the extremes, that's where it helps you. And the last time I checked, at least whenever you look around at historical market tops, there usually hasn't been an instance during a market top that has been that has included piles of negativity in piles of negative news. It's usually yeah. met with the opposite. They're usually euphoria, yeah, they're right. usually lots of good news, all that stuff. Right. Yeah. What else don't we have? We do not have an escape hatch zone cell signal, at least at this point, right? At least not yet. So here is where we think we are. We believe that we are in an instance where we have no monetary failure and no inverted yield curve. Now, there's a ton of people listening right now that are saying, but wait, the news said we had an inverted yield curve. Mm -hmm. I understand. The two-year bond and five-year bond, right, the two-year note and the five-year treasury has inverted, right? It's a slight inversion. And when I, mean, when I say slight inversion, I mean really slight. The, the peak of the inversion of the two-year, five-year uh, two five bond was roughly two one-hundredths of a percentage point. In other words, the two-year note was paying 2.725, and the five-year note intraday was paying 2.707. Okay. So the five-year was paying less than the two-year, which is an inversion. You would expect to get more interest for the longer you hold the bond, right? Yes. As of yesterday, the two-year was paying 2.735. The five-year was paying 2.732. Hmm. Not that much of an inversion. Slight, Right. Three one-thousandths of a percentage point. Not that big at all. So we understand, yes, the news media is pounding on a two-year, five-year inversion right now. But please understand, the two-year, five-year inversion is not the two-year, ten-year in terms of predictive power as it relates to recessionary times. Is it tight? Yeah. The two-year, ten-year is tight. But it's not inverted. And in fact, over the past three days, we've actually seen it, seen it widen slightly, right? The 10-year mm. note has actually increased in yield slightly over the past week. So what we know is, is that before we get a sell-everything indicator, number one, our recessionary dashboard is going to start to shift from expansionary readings to neutral, and then it's going to shift from neutral readings to recessionary. And then there's going to be a yield curve inversion of the two-year, ten-year variety, right? That's going to happen during that shift in the, in the recessionary dashboard process. And, and then you get an escape hatch zone trigger. So um, I know we're probably getting a little long in the tooth, but for us at Capstone Wealth Management, we have a recessionary dashboard that we use that identifies previous recessions, and identifies in that uh, in, in that segmentation, it identifies seven different elements to help us identify whether or not a recession is is increasing in terms of probability. So when we come back, I'm going to go through those real quick to let you know where we are as it relates to pure information about the elements that bring about a recession. All right, we have it or don't we? All right, good because I think everyone wants to know as soon as possible what that potential information could be. So we'll get to that on the other side a little bit more as well. Capstone Wealth Management, a private fee-only financial planning and investment management service. So if you need a financial plan, they're going to build it, then they'll help you monitor and maintain it through smart investment management. To get in contact with them, number of ways you can do so, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. 
or send him an email, info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. This is Buddy Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. is Money Talks with Capstone Wealth Management on the Big 1070, 1070 AM and 100.9 FM. Rocking on to the bottom part of the hour. I am Mike Pilch along with Chris Klein of Capstone Wealth Management. To get in contact with them, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. You can email them info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. Check them out on Twitter at careformywealth. Capstone Wealth Management, a private fee-only financial planning and investment management service. So if you need a financial plan, they'll build it. Then they'll help you monitor and maintain it through smart investment management. Somebody posted a clip the other day on Twitter of your favorite scene from the film Trading Places by Mortimer. Bye. And every time I see that, I can't help but think of you. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. I'm glad that I'm uh, related to that uh, that famous movie because that was a ton of fun. It certainly was, <laughs> and one that I should rewatch because I haven't seen it in a while. All right, let's before we get into some of those indicators, and there's so many elements and indicators. And I know your newsletters, you send those out. You have them on your website, and that's a good way to keep in contact with what you're talking about. But that was some heavy stuff the last two segments. So let's try to recap what you just went through. So. Um, basically from a sentiment perspective, because so far we've identified and discussed sentiment, right? Next, I'm going to get into the specifics of what we're seeing in terms of recessionary items. Because recessionary items are valuable to help us understand whether or not they're increasing or decreasing or staying mm-hmm. neutral. And of course, if they're increasing, then that would you know bring about some concern because markets don't typically do well in a recession. But from a sentiment element, what we've identified so far is, is that we are at an, a pessimistic extreme by the average individual investor, affectionately referred to as monpa, mm-hmm. right? Not institutions. And historically speaking, at least as it relates to reasonably decent bull markets, when monpa have become this negative, markets return quite well over the next 12 months. Our research shows an average of close to 17% for the NASDAQ 100 over the next 12 months when sentiment breaches these levels that they've breached, right? If you go back all the way to 1968, I think, the numbers are even greater. It's like 29% over the next 12 months. So, you know, it's history. We can't ignore it because the markets are, whether we want to, people want to admit it or not, markets are made up of psychology. They're made up of people making decisions about their money. Sometimes they're using logic to do it. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes they're just throwing money in and forgetting about it. But we have to look at it from a logical standpoint. So, so far, what we've discussed is nothing more than sentiment as it relates to the Monpi. Average individual investor is at massive extremes, and it's at those moments that have historically ushered in a bottom and a fairly strong turnaround. So prior to the break, I said the next thing that we're going to consider is where are we as it relates to current recessionary items. Yep. We keep a dashboard. It's called the recession dashboard, and it monitors seven things. It monitors the yield curve, inflation trends, job creation, credit performance, the ISM manufacturing index, earnings quality, and the housing market. Okay. So these are these are the big elements that we want to know are we – recessionary, expansionary, or neutral. So it's a really super easy chart to look at because it gives you an up arrow, a down arrow, or a sideways arrow. 
super, super easy to look at and go, huh, where are we? Mike, in every single category, we are still expansionary with the exception of one. And the one that is not expansionary is neutral, and it's inflation trends. Oh, okay. That if makes we sense. we go back, if, well, and, and what's interesting about the inflation trends is that historically core PPI, CPI, so the core producer price index and the core uh, consumer price index have very been, been very, very closely linked to the movement of the price of oil. Yes. Well, if you look at a current chart of the core CPI, PPI, and the price of oil, and you overlay those three things on each other, what you'd see is that for the longest time, they just kind of kept up with each other until about the last roughly month, month mm. and a half, two months. Core PPI, CPI is tame, but not necessarily falling, and the price of oil has fallen out of bed. I mean, good grief, if we look at what West Texas Intermediate has done in just the last two months, it's gone from almost 80 bucks a barrel down to 50 The oil market has had a collapse. Yeah, gas right? prices have been extremely low for a while now, for the most part. So if we look at that correlation of core CPI, PPI, and oil, and mm -hmm. presume that there's nothing fundamental that has changed the correlation of those three things for the longest time, what that says to us, at least to me, Chris Klein and Capstone Wealth Management, what that says is that we probably should expect, to some degree, see some of these inflation numbers start to come down, right? <clears throat> the Fed knows this, and I'm going to talk about the Fed at the end because they are the last integral, highly important element of understanding and, and dealing with where we believe to be within the market cycle, mm -hmm. okay? But our recessionary dashboard takes into consideration all the previous recessions through you know, the, like, for example, the earliest one we've recorded and identified is November of 73. People listening who lived through the 73, 74, 75 recession know that it was bad. It was stagflation, right? Remember that whole thing? Then, of course, 1980, 81, 90, 2001, and 2007, right? In every single one of those instances, there were a multitude of those seven categories, yield curve, inflation trends, job creation, credit performance, ISM manufacturing, earnings quality, and housing market. There were a multitude of those categories that were showing recessionary elements at the start mm -hmm. of the recession. So what that says to us is that, yeah, we're seeing all this stuff and it's not recessionary, right? Good news. So I, for the most part, have to look at those facts look at that detail, look at that data, and say to myself, I don't see anything on the horizon, at least in the next six months, that are suggesting that this recessionary dashboard is just going to fall apart. Yeah. Could, could it? Maybe. But we know that today is not the start of a recession, because we don't have any recessionary elements out of the seven categories. So you're feeling confident in the numbers you're seeing then, and what the I data am. is telling you. Yeah. I All I can do is interpret what the data says, Mike. Right? I don't make it up. Everybody that is an investor at the institutional level has access to the exact same stuff that we do and looks at the exact same stuff. None of yeah. us is just making up stuff out of thin air, right. right? We don't call up the Fed and go, hey, do you have that secret handshake sort of piece of data that we could get our hands on again? <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? Everybody's looking at the same stuff. And, and that's one of the reasons why technical analysis in markets can be very valuable because institutions, computers, and the like look at a picture 
of the movement of markets, and it all everybody sees the same thing. So you, you, we're responding to and reacting to the same degrees of movement, right? So let's move on to earnings, because pundits across the board have stated that earnings growth is expected. In fact, if you listen to many of them, you'd think that earnings have already started to slow, mm-hmm. much less expect to slow, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what the details, that's not what the data is saying. Right now, in fact, the forward 12-month earnings per share estimates are actually rising. And when you consider that, that has had a tendency to correlate with a rising market. So uh, the data that we have available to us takes into consideration the S&P 500's change in forward 12-month earnings per share numbers. And it compares it to the price change of the index. The forward 12-month earnings per share numbers have gone up 0.13% in the last week. Now, that, to me, is not declining. (laughs) If it's not declining and it's not staying the same, well, then it must be going up. And if it's going up, then that is not telling us that earnings are, in fact, right now, contracting. Are we going to get a reduction in the earnings growth? Of course. Good grief, Mike. Last year, earnings growth was somewhere to the tune of like 25%. We know that companies cannot grow their earnings at 25% per year. Nobody reasonably expects that. But know what I didn't say. Earnings are not contracting to the point where they're negative. Yeah. Right? They're still growing. They're just not growing as fast. I mean, a lot of them still aren't hitting those big earnings numbers, though. Is that one of the reasons why some of those are coming down? They're just unrealistically high? So, yeah, absolutely. Some of, of course, when you post numbers like what many of these companies have posted over the last couple of years, analysts continue to want more and more and more. All right, okay, yep. And, and so the hurdle gets higher. It gets harder to achieve that number. And so then all of a sudden a company misses it, and through Plowy you get like what you saw yesterday in Costco. Yeah, so that's something else you got to take into consideration when you're looking at those numbers. Yeah, it is, and we're not considering the current um, earnings per share of any one company. We're looking at the forward 12-month earnings per share numbers of the S&P 500, yeah. right? Okay. The companies that make up that index. So we're looking at it on the whole, which is what you have to do when you're identifying from a macro perspective, do we have – hissy fit of a correction or do we have something worse or do we have a really great opportunity in terms of entering into markets that that's what we're trying to identify right so there's there's the earnings component there's the sentiment component there's the recessionary component right so now we have to talk about trade (laughs) because it seems that every day a little bit more and a little bit more in terms of details comes out about the trade war Mm -hmm quotations with China, right? And the tariffs and everything else, yep. <clears throat> All of that. Well, here's what's interesting, and, and, and I don't know why this is, but it seems to me that a number of news items are just not being reported, at least to the degree you would have expected, if there was a positive spin on this stuff, right? So I just want to read to you a few headlines that I was able to uncover over the past week specifically as it relates to the day-to-day leaking of information or the reporting of information with regards to our, quote, trade war with China. Okay. The first headline is from the New York Times. Chinese markets were early to the trade war meltdown. 
Now they're not so worried. Mike, do you remember last week when I talked about the change in the Chinese stock market as identified by exchange-traded fund symbol FXI? I do, yep. And I said that from October 1 through, well, I'll tell you what it is. From October 1 through yesterday, I think the number's off like 4.5%. But yet the S&P 500 is down 11.5%. So most people who view the trade war, at least from an analytical standpoint, recognize that more likely than not, China's probably got more to lose than us. So, so why would their stock market be down, you know, less than ours right. to yeah. the tune of more than half? That, that makes sense, yeah. Okay, so that's the first headline. Next headline, Trump gets trade win as China resumes purchases of U.S. soybeans. That was not widely reported, Mike. I never even saw that before. <laughs> China purchased on, let's see, today's Saturday, China on uh, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, purchased 500,000 tons of soybeans from U.S. farmers. I didn't see that. That's a huge number. That's $180 million. Yeah, that's a big, big... I don't don't quite understand why I didn't see that. Not reported. Here's another one. Now, here's one that is a... Again, it's a a commodity, but it's a metal. Copper has Mm -hmm. a tendency to be viewed as an economic indicator, both on the upside and the downside. When copper is falling out of bed, people are presumptive that, oh, the economy is going to contract, and that's a problem. When copper is going up in value, it's the opposite. We're expanding. Is that because so copper is used for so many different things? It's so just used things, a lot? Yeah. Industrial building, yeah, all that. So okay. here's the headline. Copper touches one-week peak on easing U.S.-China trade tensions. Where was that headline? Uh, I, uh, that I, where, are you, where are you getting these from? That's where I'm wondering if you're making stuff up. I'm like, no, yeah. why New am York I not Times, seeing this? <laughs> New York Times, Bloomberg. I mean, you name wow. it. Here's one, here's one from Business Insider. Asian markets are welcoming China's concessions on Trump's trade war. Well, I did see I a little on, on concessions, yeah. The fact that it's even happening yeah. is good news, right? Here's another one from Fox Business. Signs of progress in U.S.-China trade talks. Here's one from Forbes. The market is sensing a U.S.-China trade deal. Now, Mike, I don't know about you, but those headlines are incredibly positive. <laughs> and yet at the same time, I don't see any of that information rolling around, at least to the degree that the negative headlines are taking over. I can't reiterate enough that ordinarily, at least by every standard, historically speaking, you don't have the current degree of negative headlines that we see bandied about on an ongoing day-by-day basis, hour-by-hour, at a market top. Yeah, You get negative news at a market bottom because it scares people out at the bottom. And it sucks people in at the top when all the good news comes out and all everybody's feeling great and euphoric, right? That's a really important piece of information. All right, I the tell last, you what. Okay, go ahead. if you got one more, go ahead then. Nope, we'll take a break. The last right. piece of information that I want to review is the Fed because they're meeting next week, and it's going to be valuable and important. All right, as it usually is. Uh, Capstone Wealth Management, to get in contact with Chris Klein and Capstone Wealth Management, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. Or you can also send them an email, info at careformywealth.com. Welcome in. This is Money Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. One final point you wanted to make today, Chris. 
Yeah, the, the last bit of information for the day is regarding the Federal Reserve. You know, the Fed, which, by the way, is always the final arbiter of bull and bear markets, they meet next week on the 18th and 19th, and, and their policy statement is expected on the 19th after their decision on interest rates. I think pretty much everybody is resolved that at this point they're going to raise rates another quarter point. But Chairman Powell struck a very, very dovish tone when he spoke uh, and he had a speech recently at the, at the New York Economic Club. Mm-hmm. The New York Economic Club, at least in that audience, was filled with power brokers left and right. So the comments that he was making were not being made to people without the ability to handle and deal with large sure. sums of money. Right. right. They know what they're doing. Yep. They know what they're doing. So during his speech, he used the word neutral. You might remember that. I spoke about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago because the Dow went up like 630 points or something mm-hmm. like that, right? It just simply meant that he believed that the Fed was very close to a point of stopping rate hikes or that they've achieved, in his view, rate neutrality, Mm -hmm. right? Look, nobody knows for sure what the Fed may or may not do, but I think it's a fair estimation to at least extrapolate from that speech that the Federal Open Market Committee is probably prepared to strike a little bit more dovish tone in their policy statement when they come out on the 19th. If, in fact, they do strike a little bit more of a dovish tone, then that would more likely than not support that we are closer to a bottom than we are a top. Yeah. Right? Look, I know this. The The bottom line, and this is true with anything, the bottom line is that we know that there are risks in every time frame and in every market. But now doesn't appear to be the time that's ready to usher in the next recession or the next bear market just yet. I can't go through the piles of data that we have on an ongoing basis and come up with more negative data than I have positive data. To come up with more positive or to come up with more negative data, what I have to do is read the tea leaves. In other words, I have to look at things from a technical aspect only. And you can't do that when identifying valuations in markets and all that sort of stuff. So the evidence suggests that the probability for a growing economy and a rising market are going to, at least in the near... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.